Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Chatting to veteran all-round angler Brian Harris on the subject of today's fishing magazines, Mark Bowler's fly fishing and fly tying was his unhesitating first choice of top game fishing title based on its coverage, presentation and editorship. Quite an accolade coming from a man whose association with the title's Creel and Angling magazine are still talked about with nostalgic favour some 40 years or so after their demise. That said, fly fishing and fly tying has at times trodden a rather precarious path. So, for its editor, Mark Bowler, who I'm linking up with here at his busy Aberfeldy office, the obvious first question is to take us along that particular path from the magazine's conception to where it sits today. It all happened by chance, really. Um, I was keen on writing and I was into fisheries, but I'd seen an advert in one of these free local papers which was working as an assistant editor on a magazine which immediately I recognised as salmon trout and sea trout, which... I'd already read that magazine and thought it was something special about it. There was something special about the magazine that came across as being quite detailed but also very involved and it was quite serious but it looked at fishing in a slightly different way and it treated the reader as though they actually knew something about the topic and wanted to know more. So I applied for the job although I had no experience whatsoever and I got to meet Roy Eaton, who was the editor at the time, and he interviewed me. And I think he was very interested in the dissertation I'd done at Edinburgh when I was doing fisheries and wildlife there, and I'd done a dissertation on um, the autumn rod-caught salmon of the River Tweed, and he was very interested in that. And I realised later, when I knew Roy, that he had a particular interest in that topic of... It's basically to do with how grills and autumn-running fish are cyclical. And Roy had a great interest in that, and um, he often used to ask me about it many years later, about what I thought about this and that. So I think, unbeknown to me, that helped me in the interview. But as it happened, I didn't get the job. It went to somebody who actually had more experience than I did. But it was interesting that a year later, Roy came back to me, and the person who had had the job had moved on, and he asked me if I was keen to take it on. And, of course, I was, so I started working with Roy from that point on. That was working on Salmon Trout and Sea Trap magazine, and when I got taken on, there was always this idea that there would be a new magazine, which I would edit, which would encompass fly tying, but also still water fly fishing, which uh, Salmon Trout and Sea Trap didn't really cover. And so, as we got through the work with Salmon Trout and Sea Trout, so we then started to look at how we were going to develop fly fishing and fly tying and so it all happened um, sort of overnight really the whole thing because I was saying well we really need to get this out in the spring because that's when most still water people will be restarting their fishing so I was pushing it from one end and it was very much a sort of the first issue was a lot of articles which we couldn't really use in salmon trout and sea trout and which we are thinking well what can we do with these pieces so we drew them together and I remember one evening Dave Goodchild who was then the editor of Salmon Trout and Sea Trout Roy had become consultant editor by then we were sitting there one sort of sunny evening I remember till quite late putting together the very last pages of Fly Fishing and Fly Tying before it went to print and that came out as the very first issue in 1993 the setup 
of game fishing publications at the time, there were two sleeping partners involved, and they basically helped get some trout and sea trout up and running, and also fly fishing and fly tying. But unfortunately, they had a, a fallout in 1993, and this meant that they both wanted to get out of the company, which meant that somebody had to take it on. And during that time, both magazines were bought up and moved to Scotland. And from there, because I'd been to Edinburgh University and I had also spent time up in Scotland, and I liked Scotland, and I thought it was a good place to have a game fishing magazine, in any case, I moved up with the magazine as well. And so I ended up working on both salmon trout and sea trout and fly fishing and fly time from the square in Aberfeldy, which is in fact where we are now. But in between there, between that being in the square in Aberfeldy there and being in the square in Aberfeldy today, there's quite a lot happened in between. And basically, what happened with fly fishing and fly time was within six months of arriving here in Scotland, it was sold. And I had to apply for the job of the editor to a group who now ran it for Milton Keynes. Now, I don't know if you know the Highlands of Scotland, but I just managed to move into a house in Kenmore, which is a beautiful little village on the River Tay. And my last thought was, you know what I want to do? I want to move to Milton Keynes. And so I was a bit loath to join up with the idea. However, at the time, what was happening in the publishing industry at that time, there was things like computers and modems which just started to come into it, and so they were quite happy for me to work from home and regularly go down to Milton Keynes and see them and oversee what was going on down there every month and work that way. So that's what I did. I started working from my back bedroom in my house overlooking Loch Tay, and it was great. I mean, I, I used to work away and I used to do some work and fish and then I would fish and do some work at night when it was dark. I basically lived a, a life of uh, fishing and putting together a magazine and occasionally going to Milton Keynes and it was really good. And it, I could sit in my office and tap away on my, what was then a big sort of square computer and watch ospreys feeding in Loch Tay and then I could actually watch seagulls circling around taking olives and think oh, it's about time to get out there and uh, suddenly I, I could nip off and have a few hours fishing and then come back to the computer so it was idyllic but unfortunately it was too idyllic and um, the, <laughs> the company went into liquidation and I got summoned down to Milton Keynes to say that um, the police had moved in and seized all the computers and I don't know why, but apparently I was quite important. When anything went wrong down there, I had to be summoned down there and uh, see if I could sort it out. Of course, I had no idea what was going on. And so when the liquidators moved in, I thought, well, here's a chance to actually buy the magazine again, because I tried to buy it in the first instance when the sleeping partners fell out before. I couldn't get it then. And the liquidator, I spoke to the liquidator... And he said, well, I put in an offer for it and managed to compile an offer for it. And he said, oh, that's a pretty good offer. You should feel pretty pleased with that. And so I started making my plans. But, um, of course, I never got the phone call to say I'd got it. Because during this time, another chap had bought it. I imagine he put in a lot bigger offer than I had. Because he'd just 
sold six months previously a group of magazines which he was involved in the building trade and he got a huge amount of money together from that and he then sailed around the world got bored and decided he was going to get into leisure magazines and fly fishing and fly time was the first one he saw come up so he put in a bid against me and inevitably he outbid me so he rang me up on the monday after i'd found out on the friday i hadn't got it and he asked me to edit it and i said i wasn't that keen because i was getting fed up of working for different people every six months and i said there isn't the money you think there is in it in six months time i'm sure you'll want to get rid of it and i'll be down on my feathers again i won't know what i'm doing again and it's a very unsettling and i think i'll just set up my own magazine i said don't do that don't do that he said uh, i'm not going to sell it and in between times i'd spoken to one of my contributors called robert spake who is a vicar but he also trained to be a lawyer and he said to me he said well you know mark he said you could easily work for this chap and you could say to him well, if he is going to sell it just have something in your contract which gives you first refusal on buying it when and if you think he's going to sell it so i said this and the, the chap's name was dennis taylor and dennis said well i'm not going to sell it and i said well that's great we can have that in the contract because if you aren't going to sell it we can put something in the contract that it doesn't matter if it, it's never going to come up and he said yeah okay we'll do that so we sorted it all out and six months later he came rang me up and he said he's still interested in buying it and I said of course I am and uh, he was really good at, he was exceptional he was a great guy and he sold it to me for less than I'd originally bid for it in a liquidated auction and by then you see what he'd realised was that he'd collected a few other magazines on the way and mainly auto magazines and I imagine they were probably taking more money in a month than Fly Fish and Fly Time would take in a year and I think I could see that it was coming further and further down his list of priorities. So it was very good of him to actually take on board the comments that I'd made and we'd discussed six months previously. And so eventually I uh, went down to Kent where Dennis was based, gave him the cheque and I picked up. It's funny if you, if you ever buy a magazine, you don't really buy anything, you buy a title and that's it. And so I picked up this cardboard box. It had some old letters in it and some old transparencies and there were a few bits of paper. That was it really. And I then drove back up to Scotland with the cardboard box and thought, right, here we go. And so I just carried on doing what I was doing, but I had to negotiate with printers to get the whole thing printed. I had to negotiate with the bank to get the money and off we went. We were off on a different, slightly different road doing the same job but having a lot more responsibility. And it is quite a responsibility because when you print an issue, you don't get paid for that straight away. You wait for the sales to come back and then you're actually paid there and then. So by the time you're paid for the first issue, you've already printed two issues. So you've lashed out tens of thousands of pounds on the first two issues and you haven't actually received any money in. There were a few nights when I'd wake up thinking, what happens if we don't sell one copy? It is quite unnerving when you first start, but um, we did sell copies and we certainly kept ourselves busy enough to then start to develop the magazine from that small bedroom and 
within a few months it got very difficult to actually try and get into the bedroom because there were two computers in there, two desks and uh, filing cabinets and boxes and it became a sort of <laughs> gymnastic competition to actually get in and sit in front of your desk and get working at it. But well, it was very good fun. Good fun and um, certainly it kicked off well. What makes this story even more remarkable is the fact that your personal pathway into journalism started with nothing more than you simply fancied giving it a try. No formal training. Quite literally a case of flying by the seat of your pants and learning as you go. I suppose it all stemmed from the fact that when I was at school, um, I was going on to do, I'd done my O-levels and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. My dad was in education and he was very keen for me to go on and do my A-levels at school and then go to university. But I thought, well, well, I'm not really that interested in doing anything like that. I want to get out in the wide world and earn some money. And he was quite canny. He then discovered that Edinburgh University did a fisheries management course. So he said, you, you do realise that if you got these grades at A-level, you could go there. And so I thought, well, that sounds good, OK. So suddenly, having been pretty useless at biology and not really good at chemistry, I really started to work at them, and uh, I got the required grade. So I did wildlife and fisheries management up in Edinburgh, and we did an honours course in uh, fisheries in the last year there. It was basically ecological sciences with an honours degree tacked onto the back of it. And so when we came out of there, I came out <laughs> right in the middle of the recession. It was a great course to go on, but when we came out, there were absolutely no jobs to be had probably a little bit like now. So everybody on our course was keen to get into fisheries, but there was just nothing out there, and so you'd have to really look. And I remember the one one of the jobs that came up at the time would have been working on the salmon project on the Thames. And I remember applying for that and thinking, I've got a really good chance. And I got a letter back saying, thanks for your inquiry. There were... 650 applicants for the job and so I then just thought I remember going to think well I'm, I'm going to struggle here so I might as well go and do something for myself and in the meantime what I would just, I'd worked up in Scotland at a field centre um, that was brilliant fun it taught me a lot about Scotland it taught me a lot about um, people and nature and um, certainly I would say that working out there that's when I sort of really fell in love with Scotland because as a place and as, a, as an environment and also I was be fishing up there as well. And so after that I got that job because I worked in a fiberglass factory making windsurfer boards for that. And I think because I was doing that, I was John Lister Kay who gave me the job up in Agus Field Centre. He said that was one of the things that he noticed that I was actually working at the time. Very few people who applied at the time for that job were actually working so that made a difference so I did that for a year and then when I came down I got a job at a fish farm I worked in a fish farm down in uh, Star on the Wold and there we hatched out uh, mainly rainbow trout fry and reared on a few rainbow trout fry and some rainbow trout for the table and whilst I was there I dug a lake and we made a little fishery there at the back of the fish farm which is still there just a small stillwater trout fishery which I used to run and that was quite successful it had its own difficulties because it was quite shallow and it had problems with weed in the summer but 
it was good grounding and it was very good fun doing it and you learnt a lot about uh, fishermen and fisheries and trout fishing so enjoyed it very much but also at the same time I was encountering people who were working with coarse fish and they were netting coarse fish and selling coarse fish to angling clubs so I was working a lot with um, people that were doing that and one of the guys I was working with Richard Morgan he said you know what Mark all the lakes I net for coarse fish nobody ever seems to think about eels that are in there at the time there were a lot of eels I know we've got a problem with eels now but at the time eels were everywhere and I knew certain people fight net for eels but I didn't hear much about that business so I bought some fikes and started eel netting and trapping for eels and there's a huge market for eels because I, I went down to Billingsgate and spoke to guys down there and uh, you know I would say well are you interested in eels and they would say how many tons have you got and you thought crikey because uh, I was thinking of 50 to 100 pounds of eels not tons and so there were all sorts of things going on at the time with fish and the more I did it uh, the more I got into netting fish um, and we were using big seine nets in reservoirs um, and gravel pits all the way around the country and again very exciting stuff because when you go out netting you really don't know what you're going to catch one time I caught a 36 and a half pound pike we caught huge carp once big shoals of tench but that you would also go I remember once I went up to Scotland and fished in this big lock Kilburnie lock and it's made out of clinker a lot of clinker from the uh, the steelworks there I remember we got something big in the net there and it, it was this massive anchor we, it took me ages to get it in it was a massive anchor you never really knew what you were going to turn up with. It's a good life, but it's very hit and miss. So I needed something a little bit more um, stabilising, I suppose, for income. And I knew I'd learned about smoking fish when I was at the fish farm. And I started to bring down salmon from Scotland and smoke them in a smokery that I built from an old space heater. So these big space heaters, which would be used for heating... Uh, a big warehouse or something and I had help from friends who were good with electric so we were putting heating elements into it and, and thermostats and welding on smoke drawers and fans and had chimneys on it and it worked really really well and through doing that I managed to supplement what I was doing by providing um, I used to do a lot of fresh smoked salmon at Christmas in the end, I, I built a small smokery, um, and my brother, he's a bit of an animal, he came and plastered it all, and we fitted it all out. After I'd seen Roy, and I hadn't got the job, and I decided, well, I've got to really do something positive with what I'm doing now, so I, that's when I fitted out the smokery and decided I would probably go down that route of getting into smoking fish. But that didn't actually quite work out because Roy then came back to me a year later and said, are you still interested? And of course I was. And so I then went to work with him and tried to balance the netting and the smoking and the assistance editing all together. And of course the assistant editing won out in the end and the rest is history. Can we complete the historical trilogy with your angling apprenticeship? 
Firstly how you got into fishing, then your pathway through to the world of game fishing. My start in fishing is probably typical, but I don't know. But I can remember the very first day I went fishing, and I would have been at seven. And I can remember it, because I went with my brother, who was two years older than me, and we went down to the river, and we... I bet we didn't catch any fish. I'm absolutely sure we, would, we didn't catch any fish because I would have remembered it. But I do remember coming back and being totally and absolutely smitten by what I'd just done. And although subconsciously I must have just thought, I am a fisherman, that is what I want to do. And I remember my brother went, a few weeks later he, he was going to go fishing again and because I couldn't swim my mum decided I couldn't go and I was furious because I couldn't go I couldn't go fishing um, and I remember my brother going and I couldn't go and being very upset that I couldn't go but during that time we just used to go down to the River Welland and we would fish but we were useless fishermen we would catch minnows but I just loved it and I think it was probably to do with being outside and being by a river and just the environment and the people I was with and the anticipation, I think, of catching a fish. It's very hard to explain, but I know that I was totally drawn to it as soon as I'd done it once. And I would say I went fishing for ages without really catching anything. It would only be when... I started fishing with, say, my mate Dave Thorpe, his father used to take us, so he would show us how you would set up for strip pegging or just different float styles and float fishing. Mm -hmm. So it would be that really that showed me how you could present bait at different depths and how you would fish back eddies or, or streamy water or flat water or whatever and so then it became much more of a thinking man sport and then you started to read more about it and different setups and you suddenly realized there was a lot more to it and we would go on holiday we would always go fishing when we were on holiday and my dad my dad wasn't a fisherman and he was so patient and he would just sit there and untangle line and he would take weed off hooks he was there all the time and yet he wasn't a fisherman I was never had the chance to ask him whether he was completely bored or not but he did put in hours and hours of very patient work and you probably could see that we were both both my brother and I were really really enjoying it we loved it once say we went sea fishing I remember we went sea fishing off St David's Head in Pembrokeshire when we were on holiday there and I remember hooking what would have been a big pollock off a sheer cliff and I remember my dad lying on the cliff, looking over the, over the precipice, going, it's massive, Mark, it's massive, Mark. And my rod was a, a fiberglass rod that was yellow. And I remember it bending at the handle, and I was winding for what I was worth. But of course, I couldn't get the fish off out of the water, which was about, probably about 25 feet below me. And so, obviously, the fish in the water was fine, but as soon as it, I tried to lift it out of the water, it was just physically impossible. And eventually, the spinner that I was using pinged out of its mouth, 
and flung itself, I can remember it now, I can remember it flinging up into the air and reaching exactly 25 feet above me and then coming back down and I can still remember the chink of the spinner landing on the rock right by my feet and me thinking, I've lost it. And I'd never saw it, I'd never saw it. My dad saw it and he said it was a big pollock and he was like, his arms were outstretched telling me how big it was, but I hadn't seen it. And I think that was yet another step in me being a lifelong fisherman because I, I was completely hooked and all I wanted to do was go back there and try and catch it. But um, I never did. That's how I got hooked to the fisherman probably. I was very lucky, I was, um, I'd always read things about fly fishing and seen them in catalogues about fly fishing. I didn't really understand it at all, but I was gathering information on fly fishing that had no conception of it. And again, I was very much on my own. I mean, um, you're talking 40 years ago. And so all I had, I do remember, uh, I'll come back to it in a minute, but uh, all I had to learn to cast was an Abu catalogue. I remember that, and just a stickman drawing yeah. of, of how to do it. But it was really the fact that Ibrook Reservoir, which is in Northamptonshire, was just two miles down the hill, a bike ride down the hill. And we had, I'll say in inverted commas, poached the river for trout when we were younger and there were always trout in the river so we knew how to catch them by there so I suppose it was a natural thing to think well where are all these trout coming from and we enjoyed catching trout and so we knew they'd come out of the reservoir but we also knew that you had to fly fish for them you couldn't use a worm or a, or a spinner on, or a dead minnow on Ibrook Reservoir and so I remember gathering up some poor gear, a fly line, a reel and a rod and I was lucky that I had a friend who was also interested, he was a very very good angler, my, my mate, Mike Duxbury, and he and I decided we would try and go fly fishing and see what it was like. And I remember the very first day we went, because I didn't have any waders, so he said, oh, I've got a friend who's got some waders. He said. Uh, and he produced these waders, which I've never ever seen before, and I hope I never see them again. But they were made of canvas. So we went, and because it cost quite a bit, it cost a lot more to fly fish for trout than it did to coarse fish. So we were very aware of the cost of a day's permit. So we went at dawn, and so it was dark when we actually got there and put these canvas waders on. I remember wading out and realising the canvas waders didn't actually work. And so by the time dawn had broken, I was soaking wet. And um, we weren't managing to cast very far either. I was beginning to think fly fishing really wasn't for us. But um, because we were so close, I went home, got dry again. Then we went back down again and we got a boat. And we thought, this will be the thing, we can get a boat and we can fly fish off the boat because it won't matter how far we can cast. So we booked the very last boat, and I remember it was an old wooden, heavy, clinker-built thing. And by this time, the wind had got up, and we couldn't row either. And we got caught in the wind, and the wind was blowing onto the dam, and we spent all morning rowing. And we never got the rods out at all. We just rowed and rowed and rowed, and we gradually drifted across the reservoir whilst we were rowing. And we ended up 
and all we were trying to do was row away from the dam because we thought we were going to get smashed to pieces on the Eyebrook Dam. So we just kept rowing and rowing and rowing, and we ended up on the far side of Eyebrook Reservoir, clinging onto a willow tree to stop ourselves from going any further into the dam and getting smashed up. So we had our lunch, clinging to a willow tree, and then we said, look, we've got to get this sorted, we'll have to get across the other side of the reservoir. So we decided that perhaps we needed to be pulling together on the oars, which we probably weren't doing. So we pulled all the way back across, and we managed to get back into the sheltered water on the other side. And by this time, it was probably about half past one in the afternoon, and we still haven't cast, and we've been there since dawn. So we put the anchor down and then we realised we hadn't tied the anchor on properly and we'd lost the anchor. And so I had to go back to the lodge and get another anchor. Um, So it was probably about half past two by the time we were firmly anchored in this bay in the shelter uh, in the lee of the hills. And we started fishing. And I'll never forget that Mike actually hooked a fish on a mudlam in I can remember it as clear as day. And I remember one of the guys who was fishing off the bank. It was one of those days where you could hear what people say, you know, it drifts across the water. He said, bloody hell, I don't believe it, they've caught one. <laughs> and he must have been watching us all day, rowing. So Mike's playing this fish. And even at that time, we're still very superstitious. And the superstition is that if you take a net with you, then you'll never catch anything. So we haven't got a net. And so Mike's playing this uh, trout, probably about a pound and a quarter, and we've no net to land it. And I don't know if you've ever been in a boat where you're trying to land a fish on a fly rod, but without a net, it's incredibly difficult. And you can't grab the fish, you can't... So so suddenly we've got this dilemma of having a fish on and not being able to get it in. So I eventually landed it in the baler. And we were so chuffed, really, really pleased with our whole exploit. But... I know a lot of people were watching us thinking, what the hell are those guys doing? <laughs> but, you know, once you've caught one, then you realise that you can do it. And like I say, we were then hooked. I, I do remember that once I'd started fly fishing, and very, very soon after that, I was fly tying as well. I rarely went course fishing after that. I think the fact that I was trout fishing and I could take the trout home to eat it and the fact that the trout was eating a fly that I could imitate made a lot of sense to me and I think the imitation side of it, the science of it, the science of the trout and analysing what it's eating and trying to replicate what it's eating with fur and feather was really the thing that caught my imagination and it still does. I cottoned onto that pretty quickly and we were tying flies very very soon after catching our first fish on Highbrook and again at the time getting hold of materials the right materials very very difficult um, so we were constantly scratching around for the right material and trying to find the killing fly and fish it in a killing manner which wasn't always easy <laughs> As an East Midlands boy now based at the heart of some of the best wild game fishing in Scotland, presumably in those early days of your editorship, you would have been on quite a steep learning curve in addition to the journalism. 
Yeah, certainly coming up to Scotland, it was a culture shock. As a fisherman, it was definitely a culture shock because by then I thought, yes, I can cast a fly, I can imitate flies. If I had a season ticket at Rutland Water, I thought, yeah, I was pretty well sussed. And I had various lessons when I first arrived up in Scotland which showed that I actually knew nothing at all about fly fishing. <laughs> it was a minuscule amount that I knew. Certainly when I first started it, I came up to Aberfeldy and I joined the local angling club straight away and I would come into work and I would go back to the digs I was staying with, I'd have something to eat, I'd watch a bit of Wimbledon and then I'd go down to the river and I couldn't catch anything. And I knew there were fish were there, there were, there were hard fish moving. So started a, a very long association with river fishing, which is a totally different aspect to still water fishing in many, many ways. And yeah, it's yet another steep learning curve. Still water fishing gives you certain basics, but it certainly doesn't give you everything at all to do with river fishing for the same trout that you were fishing for in still water. And obviously, being on the Tay, you then also have the opportunity to salmon fish and salmon fishing again. I remember fishing for salmon on the Tay for almost a complete season and I never saw salmon. Not on the end of my line, I did see one jump in the, in the very end of the season and it was only then that I realised that actually on this part of the Tay, the Tay is quite a cold river, it's a big river, it's a cold river, you don't often see salmon jump on the Tay, not on the high stretches. And so now that doesn't faze me at all with salmon fishing, but it's the conditions and the state of the river and the time of the year and even the time of the day when you're actually tuned into thinking, yeah, I think this is a good time. And so you do learn a huge lot by living on a river and learning a river. And it's just yet another experience that I think that's the thing about fly fishing is that you never ever know it all and even now I think another thing I do like about fishing per se is I don't particularly like being guided to fish I like to try and find them myself and I think the wider experience you have with fish the more you can bring that into your day out if you're visiting a place which you don't really know or sometimes a place you do really know you can draw on that experience and think, how am I going to catch a fish here? Where are they going to be? And what are they going to be feeding on? And that is, again, is part and parcel of the challenge of fishing for me. And I, I really enjoy that. I don't mind not catching anything. Well, I do mind not catching anything. And that's why I do my utmost to try and catch something from wherever I am. But I do enjoy that side of it. And it's the same with salmon. Or, obviously, I had this huge leaning towards sea trout as well which I got through Hugh Falkers's reading about sea trout I read everything about sea trout but I'd never actually done it when I first moved up to Scotland and that's when I first really started to get to grips with sea trout fishing of course I used to fish on the west coast quite a bit where nobody else went and I used to fish in the sea and I that's a great fishing for sea trout which you just can't get anymore now because we all know of the problems on the west coast of Scotland with fish farming basically <laughs> devastating the stocks on that side. But that all stemmed from me and my brother going up there when we were 
probably about eight and we experienced what I we sat on the banks of the river you I remember at the sea pool there and I still to this day have never ever seen such a run of fish going up a river I didn't realize that's what they were doing because all I was thinking is why can't I possibly catch one of these fish because there were thousands of them running up the river and I had them jumping over my rod jumping over my line jumping over my float none of them were being caught and there must have been about 20 people fishing for them but even to this day I don't think I've ever seen a run of fish like that and sadly you don't get that anymore on the west coast but I'm deviating off the point um, <laughs> so um, yeah I think um, with Scottish fishing I mean the other part of Scottish fishing I, I really enjoy is the wild trout lochs of Scotland which, of which there are thousands of them and when I was at the field centre I first started to fish those and it was they were completely different then um, you really need to know somebody who owned the loch in order to get permission to go there so there were a few that I could get in on those locks and I knew the people to ask and I'd go up there and fish them and you certainly learn that you don't fish them in the same way as you do a reservoir and you basically just keep moving and you don't stand still I remember the first lock I fished up there I just stood in the same place on a point because that's what you do in a reservoir yes you might catch one fish but you need to keep moving on wild Scottish locks and so, again, you have to work out what, what is happening and what you're fishing for and try and get your best methods sorted out. What also developed would be something like Bruce Sanderson's book, which he realised that there were all these trout locks out there with trout in, some of them really good locks, but nobody knew how to access them. And so his book, Trout Locks of Scotland, was a revelation to me because it meant that no matter where I went in Scotland I could look at a piece of water and look it up in a book and find this loch and I could find out how to fish it, how to get access to it and basically once you've got the access to it it's very very cheap but it's also you've got this feeling that nobody's ever fished there before because some of these lochs are miles from the road so it's kind of a hiking, um, orienteering, fishing, camping expedition but there's always the chance that you might meet a wild brown trout that nobody's ever fished for. So, yeah, I think that part of Scottish trout fishing is something which you have to do it to actually really appreciate it because you are totally out in the wild and it's just you and the trout. And some of the settings of these lochs are fantastic and some of the wildlife you see is just amazing. They're really privileged to be out there but the fishing can be stunning and in some places you can catch huge amounts of fish other places you might not catch so many but you might catch a really good wild brown trout which is highly coveted so I always think Scottish fishing is much underrated I just wish it could be uh, probably a bit more highly valued by politicians out there who don't seem to think it has any value at all and perhaps, because it doesn't actually cost much, perhaps that's why it's, it's undervalued. But certainly as part of an experience of going out there, it's well worth doing. As I said in the intro, Brian Harris, who also contributes to fly fishing and fly tying, put your operation right up there at the top of the publishing pile, which must be very rewarding. 
especially considering the history we've already discussed regarding the title's early days and your route to the helm. What is it then that sets your magazine apart from its competitors in the same field? It probably boils down to the fact that um, the philosophy behind it, I remember when I started it up, my philosophy had been affected by books by people like Brian Clark, Gordon Fraser, Arthur Cove. They'd all looked at fly fishing in a way which made sense to me, which was all about imitating the food that the fish were eating. Up until that sort of era, very much a lot of trout fishing was fishing wet flies or lures. Um, sinking lines were just coming in, but lures, I remember when we first started fishing, they were the things you used. But when you analysed what was in a fish, you knew that they weren't feeding on lures, they were feeding on beetles, or they were feeding on buzzers, or they were feeding on bloodworm, or they were feeding on fry. And so you tended to think, well, if I imitated that, surely they would eat it. And so I was doing my own imitation work, not very successfully, but I was trying it because it, it made sense to me. And I think when I first started the magazine, it was very much to try and get that philosophy across about the imitation side of fly fishing, which it wasn't the mainstream idea. And since then, I mean, obviously, stillwater fishing's developed a lot onto the uh, imitation side and we've always steered down that imitative channel but I've also tried to I suppose look for things which are not as straightforward as they might seem they might look at the other angles of fly fishing and there's always an angle and there's somebody always has something to say and I think that's the thing is fly fishing is such a diverse subject and it's it's a very individual subject as well it doesn't matter who you talk to, somebody will always come up with a theory or um, something that is of interest which you think, yeah, you know what, that makes sense. And then you'll go away and try it. And I think that's probably experimentation and trying different things is part of the philosophy that I quite enjoy and I hope the readers do as well. And also, obviously with the tying of the flies, because of got such an interest in that and I know when I first started tying I mean I learned such a lot I was so privileged when I started to meet people like Davy Watton and John Goddard these guys were showing me stuff which I'd seen but I couldn't understand and when you actually see somebody do something as like a maneuver or use a material in a certain way when you actually see it, you completely understand it. But you have to see it in the right way. So again, I suppose that would be another thing where I'd be trying to get across in the magazine exactly what I wanted to know from that person. And I suppose that's where the philosophy comes from. Would it be fair to say that most anglers these days are not prepared to put in an apprenticeship and learn for themselves such things as watercraft? With your competitor magazines through the content, both pandering to and perpetuating that situation. I do believe there is that apprenticeship that I served. I mean, I can remember, honestly, Phil, who would want to go down to Rutland Water and spend 13 consecutive evenings not catching anything because I was trying to imitate what the fish were feeding on? But 
unfortunately there were very few fish around <laughs> because because it was high summer when I was trying to do it I now know that but I think for me it is that element of trying to draw on your own resources and your own experiences to find fish and to work them out I enjoy that but I can certainly understand why somebody would want to go and say look I've got my one day I really want to go fishing but the problem with fishing is people will say there's more to fishing than catching fish and there is but at the end of the day a fisherman doesn't like to go home and actually think but I haven't caught anything he wants to catch a fish and so that's the conundrum that the, the fisherman has is that the learning curve is basically you have to take it on board that you're not going to catch anything because sometimes it just doesn't work but you can learn from a blank you really can but unfortunately you have to go through the blank before you actually learn it so yeah I think there is a lot of instant fishing more instant fishing around but I think that's just tailoring to what people want I mean I've these days there's so many guides around that you can get which I think is great I think it's fantastic that people can learn about the water very quickly from a guide because I think that will tune them into the fact that they they get to know the water and they get on the water and they have success and success no doubt you know I learned that as a fishery manager when I was down on my little lake down in Stone the Wall a fisherman won't come back and he won't keep fishing if he doesn't catch fish and yes there is more to fishing than catching the fish but catching the fish is very very important to a fisherman and so I think probably because I'd spent such a long time when I was younger just being by a river and learning about fish but not even realising I was learning about them yeah it is a useful thing to have I wouldn't want to do it any other way but it's definitely changed these days the great thing about it is that I can still tailor my day to go and suit the style of fishing that I like. I don't have to go and fish for a bunch of stockfish down by the aerators for instance. I can go and look and see if I can find something on a dry fly and if I can't then that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm winding back to the aerator later on. <laughs> Sticking with the instructional role that the media in its various guises has to play across the whole angling scene would it be fair to say that too much reliance is now placed on being handed information on a plate to the extent that anglers are no longer willing to serve any sort of apprenticeship anymore? I think you have to think about something that has interested you and made you think and it has inspired you to do something or you've overcome a problem. It's less so about just putting down an experience. I think the key is knowing if it's a slightly different experience and saying this was different and this is why and trying to identify why it was different and I suppose that's probably one of the keys is to understand what's gone before and look and say I've learned something here and I think I've got something for other people to learn from and I think when people read this then I think they're they're going to benefit from it and I do know that sometimes I'm editing a piece and when I'm reading it through it I'm thinking oh yeah this is interesting and I then think you know what I, I, I might try this and so I think if I'm doing that when I'm reading the piece I'm thinking well this is a really good piece because I'm thinking that I should try this um, so 
I, I imagine other people will be out there thinking, that's a good piece, I, I think I'll give that a go. And I think if you can inspire a reader to actually not just read it, but actually think about how he approaches his next day out, then I think you've probably achieved something. So that's really what I think the key is. That's what you've got to come up with. So on the basis of what we've already talked about, how would the job description read for anyone wanting to get a piece of written copy past you? People like Malcolm Greenhouse, for instance. Just before this interview started, I was working on his copy. Malcolm is extremely knowledgeable, but he's also fun. And I've just been working on his piece where every World Cup now that comes up, because he hates football and he gets downhearted by England's fervour about how well they might do and then he gets really downbeat when they all fail. Being Malcolm, he realises that, of course, when a country's in World Cup fever and when there's a big game on, there's nobody fishing in the best spots and the best rivers and the best still waters at the time because they're all watching television. And so he goes fishing. And so he does a piece where he goes fishing during the big games of the World Cup and then he reports on it. And I've just been working on that piece. So that is a fun piece by Malcolm, but he is extremely knowledgeable. I remember when we first talked about the magazine, he did a series on all the different insects and what the life cycle of those insects were and how that applied to fly fishing. So... And he's like an encyclopedia, Malcolm is. You know, you can ask him anything and he will know the answer. He doesn't look it up in a book, he knows the answer. Often I'm looking at something and I think, well, i better just check that and I look it up. Malcolm doesn't need to do that. He knows it. So something like that is a good guy to have because, you know, I can always bounce stuff off him and say, you know, what do you think about this? And I know his, his knowledge is, is extremely good and also it's on tap. I've got Magnus Angus, who, he's a tackle geek, really. He loves gear. And I think that's great, because we've got a lot of readers who do love their gear. And so he goes into the intricacies of that gear. And he's also a photographer, which is useful, so he can photograph the bits of the gear that, that, you know, he knows are going to appeal to people. Um, And so that's useful as well, because he can give an up-to-date appreciation of new rods or the latest rods or the latest rod actions or the latest line profiles are actually designed for and what they're trying to achieve and then having Oliver Edwards write for me was brilliant I mean Oliver wasn't just a a very good writer he used to write again almost as if he was talking but also great knowledge great entomological knowledge and also fantastic flies but he was also a draftsman so he could draw what he was tying and I think those series of articles that Oliver did were just outstanding and the flies he was producing they were flies that I would be putting the piece together and then taking the drawings home and tying the fly from the drawings before anybody else saw them it's just great to have that sort of person writing for you and then you've got you've got so much experience out there and you're talking about the Brian Harris's, the Peter Lapsley's, who's unfortunately not with us anymore. But they had so great insight into what is currently happening in fishing and what are they using? What little nuances are they bringing in which they think, you know what, this is a minor point, but 
I think it's important. And again, when you read it, you think, that's a good idea. Or they've got an opinion about something, which is because they're so experienced and because they've seen it, when you get an opinion, you think, well, they know all the background and they're, they're putting together an opinion which actually means something here. They, they're actually inspired to write it and they want people to know that this is what they think about this certain thing. So that can come into it. And then you've got people like Charles Jardine who I had somebody on the phone yesterday who was saying, you know what, the artwork, the pieces Charles Jardine is doing is fantastic. I said, it is, isn't it? I said, the great thing about Charles is, Charles is a caster, he's a fisherman, but he can also draw it. And so he can draw what he's doing. Now, you can try and photograph that, but you can never capture it. And what you can't photograph is what's happening underwater with whatever tactic or technique you're using. You can't photograph it. But he can draw it, and because he knows fly fishing, because he knows casting, he can actually draw exactly what is supposed to be happening with the rod, the hands, the line, the fly. And so, again, you've got that department which Charles can cover, which I don't think anybody else can do that. And then we've got people like Mick Huffer, who does textbook tying. He's been doing it ever since we started, and I wanted to get across in a very detailed way how a fly is tied. So anybody who picks the magazine up can see how a fly is tied. And so we do it in a lot of stages. And I think it's important that people see how a fly is tied because I think, again, when I first started, I had no knowledge of how that worked. I didn't understand what fly tying was. And what we try and do with that is we try and make it so you can see exactly how every fly is constructed right from the very basics. But Mick, he can just do it. And when you're photographing a fly being tied with the camera coming over your shoulder, I don't know if you can imagine, it's quite difficult because your fingers, you're having to move your arms and your fingers are in the wrong place. But he just ties the fly and it's always perfect. And these can be any flies from the size 16 dry fly to a, to a size 2 saltwater shrimp and he just puts them together and they always look good it's a real talent to be able to do that other people that contribute to the magazine that are important to it are people like Alistair Gowans for instance Sally Gowans who he's been fishing for salmon ever since he started fishing and he knows a huge amount about salmon and you need to have that lifetime of salmon ex experience to be able to judge what salmon are doing and uh, how they react and what they do and uh, to speak to Ali is always an education because he knows and has seen a lot happen with salmon that uh, other people haven't and he's tried a lot of different things and so somebody like having Ali on board is really useful because of that experience with salmon it's just a whole another encyclopedic knowledge of salmon how they move and what they do and certainly as regards tackling them I think he's second to none to be honest then we've got people like Bruce Sanderson who Bruce uh, has always written for the magazine ever since we started and I think there's a couple of things that Bruce really deserves recognition for because he opened up the whole of Scottish trout fishing with his guides which 
were unprecedented. They actually opened up the thousands of lochs up in the highlands that um, meant that people could access those lochs and fish them. And so the work he did on that was initially very important. And then obviously, because he has such an association with the west of Scotland and he knew those places before the salmon farms arrived, there's no wonder he's so passionate about what's happened to those uh, western highland rivers and uh, western highland rocks which have been ruined by fish farms and he is the champion of campaigning against those fish farms to try and reinstate the runs of salmon and sea trout that they really should still have. What about the angling writers you would have liked to have had on board but missed out on because of the timing? Cool. Um, well, there's obviously a lot of them, to be honest, Phil. I did work with Hugh Falkus on one or two pieces for Salmon Trout and Sea Trout, and obviously he was my boyhood hero, and so that was a great privilege to work with him. I've worked with Malt Morgan as well. See, sea Trout sea was a big thing for me. But you can think of people like Sawyer, people like Cove again, all this imitative side coming in, Skews. Um, I mean, Skews is a great writer, so he would have been good. Richard Walker would have been good, because he didn't just write the pieces, he also got involved a bit like Skews. I think anybody who had something to contribute, anybody who p produced milestone books, because that was really the only way you could get recognition in those days to actually talk to the people and to actually you know there's always more information there when somebody writes a book it isn't everything they know and so I would imagine that if you talk to any of those people you were always going to root out some little thing that you, you didn't know which they sort of pass on which you think well that's a useful thing to know and I've never really thought about that so yeah, there's stacks of them, I'd say, Phil. A bit of a change of mood now. At the risk of leading you into areas where you might perhaps be better off saying nothing, what are your thoughts on excavated holes in the ground filled with tailless stockies and of people who see this as real game fishing? I just think that the fishing is an instinct and an urge that a lot of people have. And if you're going down to fish and you're using a fly and you are getting experience. There's nothing like hooking a fish on a fly and I think that the, the feeling of achievement and the satisfaction you get from that, it doesn't really diminish. What I do think is that when we were in the, the sort of the peak of still water fishing in small still waters, which was in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, I think we missed a trick then and we should have said to people this is only a very small part of fly fishing it's very difficult to say to somebody look there's more to fishing than fishing in a small still water for rainbows with a gold head damsel there is a lot more to it you can go and you can fish in the wild well to Scotland for brown trout you can go sea trout fishing you could go salmon fishing you could go pike fishing with a fly you could go abroad, you could be fly fishing with Giant Trevally in, in the Seychelles. I have to say that if somebody had told me that I would enjoy fishing in the 
the Bahamas or Mexico when I first started out with my fly rod I would have thought they were crazy because I knew there weren't any trout out there and I thought that's all you could catch on a, on a fly rod and I think that so long as we have got fisheries out there where people can go and experience fly fishing and try and get some understanding of the casting and the retrieving and how the flies work and what the experience of catching a fish is like and that's that's fantastic but we do need to make sure that they don't think that's it because it isn't and that's just a very very small part of fly fishing and there's so much more and I think it's a shame that we had so many people doing that all those years ago and they're obviously not doing it anymore and yet they've probably attained the skills that they required but they just haven't gone on to use them and I think that is the disappointment for me because there's no doubt about it there are less fly fishermen around now than there were what 10 or 20 years ago and so we must have missed something the number of people that fish on small streams now for wild brown trout is great but that's only happened in the last few years but it's just a small compartment of the different path you can take when you actually go fly fishing I think they have a place but you have to get the message across that that isn't the be all and end all of fly fishing that isn't everything there is to know about no fly fishing and the tail of stockies yeah, you mentioned stockies with no fins. I, I really don't think there's any room today for fisheries to be stocking tailless, finless fish for recreational fishing. You know, I, don't, I don't really think it really should be done for the table market, but certainly not for recreational purposes. I think one of the things I think about fishing is that one of the privileges a fisherman has is he can catch a fish and take it out of the water and see the sheer splendour and the beauty of a fish that is freshly out of water and I don't think anybody apart from a fisherman ever really sees that when you see a dead fish on a slab it doesn't possess the iridescent colours the uh, depth of colour the life, the eye, the, the fins the, the glow of a live fish and it's a real miracle to behold the, the colours of fish are amazing but they immediately lose them within minutes of dying. So when you go fishing, you want to see a pristine specimen of fish when you bring it in. Taking manufactured fishing one stage further, what are your thoughts on manufactured success? Venues were deliberately grown on monsters and even records are put in, which often barely see out the day. Again, it's a really difficult one because I'm from a school where if I caught a fish that had just gone in the day before, and it was 20 pound I wouldn't really count it because I know I, if you run a fishery Phil you know that certain fish you put in can come out the next day and all that's happened is that the first person to present the fly to the fish in the right way it's taken it and it's got caught and so I think that probably again in those early days that's where we made a mistake we tried to pursue those big fish the big fish were basically what people wanted I think and certainly what I was trying to do was to say look you've caught some fish but there's a completely different environment you could go to and you can still catch fish on the fly and so the big fish thing people will always want to catch big fish you know that's the way fishermen are I'll always want to catch a big fish but at the back of my mind I want it to be 
wild fish something that I know hasn't just been put in but having said that I think with fly fishing today with the amount of people we've got in the country and with the pressure on fisheries it's inevitable that you will catch fish that have only been stocked the day before however to have them claimed as record you have to take that with a pinch of salt because all that really has happened is the fishery manager has managed to grow a record fish and yes somebody's had to go and catch it but that isn't really the achievement the achievement was actually producing the size of the fish in the first place but yeah i do meet anglers who their, their ambitions are to catch a double figure rainbow you can get caught up in that you know it's a goal that you want to achieve and i don't think there's anything wrong in that because it gives you a target to aim for at the back of your mind that's the goal that you're seeking and i'm lucky enough to be able to get into wild country and go and seek the same sort of thing in the wilds of Scotland but not everybody can do that there has to be an understanding that a big fish in a small water has probably not grown there in that water and seen it all and done it all it's, it, it probably hasn't been in there for very long having said that there's always a chance that it may have done it and that's the great thing about fishing <laughs> it could have escaped all those flies all that time and growed on. You said earlier that there are fewer fly anglers about these days. As a sea angler I can tell you that the same is true there too and presumably also for the coarse fishing side of things. Other interests are grabbing the attention of younger people in particular with very few coming through the ranks to replace us when we are gone. So in your opinion what is the future of fly fishing? Talk to anybody that runs clubs you realise that it isn't just fly fishing, it's cricket, it's badminton, it's scouts. It seems to be that, certainly from the youth element, there seems to be a, a, a dropping off in commitment to any particular sport or club or any of those club atmospheres that seem to we seem to have grown up with. And so that's certainly how I sort of developed into fishing was when I was that age. I was a course fisherman very young. And so I do worry about that. How do we get more youngsters into it? There seems to be a lot of work going on with people introducing people to the sport and youngsters coming into the sport. There's a lot of initiatives going on. But obviously what isn't happening is when I was younger is that I could just go fishing. That doesn't happen anymore. I just can't go down to the river with somebody else both from the safety aspect the uh, all of the aspects of going out alone when you're younger seem to crop up but also the other opportunities to do other things on your computer do seem to make the problem I think it is a universal thing and I know that there are initiatives now where we're trying to rewild youngsters and I think that's a good thing because I know that when I first went fishing I didn't catch fish I, I was just by a river and I, I knew that I wanted to be by a river and I think that rewilding kids and getting them outside is probably one of the major first steps we need to do I don't think we necessarily need to have them fishing it would help but I do think there is a, a cultural shift needed certainly with youth to get them outside and get them to experience outdoors and I know that they're trying to do that and I hope that makes a difference. I also think that 
there is a market for fly fishing in, in the fact that there is an older generation which comes through which looks on fly fishing as being something still where people may have fished when they were younger and yet fly fishing is something they've always aspired to and I do think there is still we, we know we've got an ageing population well I would hope that a lot of the ageing population when they actually look to finish work they are looking to fly fishing as being one of the ways that they can spend their time and maybe we could do a little bit more from that angle as well because certainly fly fishing you do need to have a little bit more income not an amazing amount more although I always argue that in Scotland you, you don't need any at all I mean it cost me five quid to fish on my stretch of the river which is nothing you can't play golf for any less than uh, you can fishing so you would think that side of it the older generation you would think that there might be a potential there for um, increasing in fishing but certainly from the youth side I think we just need to get more youth outside enjoying the outdoors and that's the first step when you put it that way you're right there really is no good reason why people on the budget shouldn't be able to cast a fly at truly wild fish no reason too why the conveyor belt of youngsters coming through as replacements for us should also feel put off either but unfortunately that isn't the case and this point has been made by many others in the past across all angling disciplines so obviously there is a problem but useful to have it highlighted here again nonetheless. My thanks then to Mark Bowler for sharing with us his candid views on a wide range of game angling related topics. <laughs>